0: Amen. Good morning, everybody. I think I'm unmuted. Can you hear me okay? All right. Good morning, everybody. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today, we're going to be in the book of Genesis and everywhere. Sorry, but we're going to kind of pull together a lot of scripture this morning. I don't know. If you, if you want to try and like tap your way to everything that we're doing, that's great. If not, maybe take some notes. Not a big deal. We'd love to give you a copy of the Scriptures if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures in paper form. And listen, I use my phone a lot for reading the Bible. It's super, super easy and super helpful. However, you know, sometimes I blow up. Get a lot of text, kind of popular. It's difficult when that happens to stay focused on Scripture. So if you want a copy, a paper copy of the Bible, it's super helpful to have, and I I do think it works really well. This morning... In Genesis, we're kind of going back to where it started, and we're thinking about temptation. And what do we do when temptation comes? Now, the, the most, um, hopefully the most humble person in the room is just ready to eat ways to fight temptation. You see it in yourself, and you want to war against it. But for the rest of us, let's take a second and really feel, viscerally feel what it is to be tempted. When I'm talking about temptation, I'm talking about something that you regret, but you repeat. And then, whenever that thought comes in your head, what it is that you you regret but repeat, I want you to go back to the moment just before you repeat it and think about what it is that you're feeling. Maybe for you, it's anger. And you have these blow-ups all the time, and, and golly, you wish it happened less, but your poor kids know about it, your poor wife knows about it, the people that work for you know about it. And for you, that anger, it's coming, and you know when it's boiling up, when something happens, and that anger is about to come, and now I'm going to react. You're tempted to react. You want to react. Maybe you're a, a, like you kind of person that like has the low simmer for a while. And then all of a sudden, volcano, and you, and you feel the low simmer, and you know it's coming. That moment right before you blow up. Maybe not anger for you, maybe it's just laziness. Anybody else working from home? Yeah, laziness, it's a sin, and you are sinning. Let me, let me just point the finger of God at you, working from home, people. Yeah, when you're working from home, it is super easy to do something else. Think about that moment. You regret it afterward, but think about that moment when it's like 10 o'clock or 2 o'clock. You've already had your sort of moment of motivation for work at 8 o'clock or right after lunch, and then, ha, 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 ha. And you could answer another email. You could do another thing. Or, and the little cursor blinks, and you think, like, I could just go to Netflix. I could just go to YouTube. And that moment right there, that tempting moment, Maybe it's lust. There's that person, the pretty person comes by, and what do you do? Maybe it's gluttony. You think about this food that's going to really make you happy. in the moment where you're standing at the counter and you're about to order, and in that moment it doesn't feel like A or B, and last time I ate a little bit crazy, so this time I'm going to eat more healthy. In that moment it feels like I'm going to make a decision, and this decision will end up with me either being really happy Or starving. That's what it feels like in that moment because it's a moment of temptation, not a moment of logic. Think about what it is that you're tempted by, that you regret, but you repeat. And think about the moment of desire right before the decision. As a side note, the stuff that I'm referencing here as possible sins, these are not what I think Scripture would say are like the heavy hitting sins that if we could just fix, everybody would be okay. Honestly, I think scripture has way more focus on our lovelessness and way more focus on our pride and way more focus on the way that we worship God than it does on anything about our anger, laziness, lust, gluttony, things that are attached to what it is to be a human. But today we're not talking about sin more generally, we're talking about temptation. So I want to focus on things that you already recognize as temptation, that you already recognize as something to regret. And just part of this side note, man, God... Forgive us for hearts that don't even feel the heaviness of sins. We commit every day that God hates and we don't even notice. Temptation comes when we fight and that desire gets bigger and stronger. We do regret, so we fight. But that desire before that decision just grows and balloons and entices and draws. How? Do you resist that temptation? Now, again, to see it, to understand it, I want us to go to where it all started, where this moment, the first temptation actually takes place, this awful tension starts in Scripture. And then I want us to see, we're going to slowly kind of break it down, and I want us to see how the uniquely Christian approach to fighting temptation is often unused by Christians and disregarded by non Christians. But, If we will see it, we'll put it into play. Man, I believe it's going to really change us significantly. In the first place, we get this Genesis book. The Genesis book is the first book in the Bible, and it tells us about creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how it starts. And in chapter 1, we get this creation story. By chapter 2, we're getting it again in a different way, a little bit more exposed, a little more full. And God gives the one command the one prohibition he's given another command about what we're supposed to go and do but he's given us one prohibition one thing not to do and he says in chapter 2 verse 16 and 17 the lord God commanded them saying you can eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it you will surely die So to this point, if you're just reading through Genesis 1 and 2, you're seeing all of this incredible, miraculous, beautiful creation that God is just handing. He's just giving over, and it's filled with delight and pleasure and beauty. He puts Adam in this curated garden, this place where he has built not only things, not only matter put with time and gravity and air. No, 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 not just all that, but he's cultivated even this place within creation, this garden. That word kind of insinuates that it's not just a backyard. It's actually been planned. It's actually been put together. And this beautiful place is filled with all of this fruit, all of this delight. But there is the one tree. Now, don't eat of that tree or you'll surely die. The stage is now set for chapter 3. In chapter 3... After you have God creating, after he gives us one prohibition, after Adam is given Eve, and then he sings for the beauty of his wife, we get chapter 3, verse 1, and it says, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. Okay, just like that, we get the fall of humanity. You have God's initial creation, these these people Adam and Eve made in his image, and just like that, they fall, tempted, and they fall. So what I want to do is I want to go in this kind of slow motion and look at each of the steps as they're happening, because the Bible gives us a ton of commentary back, not just on this moment, but on the things that are taking place on this moment. I want to see as well as we can through the scope of all of Scripture exactly what's happening. And to do that, I want to kind of pull it into pieces. We're going to kind of go into the slow-mo. I don't know if you've ever seen like phantom camera stuff that they do with slow motion, where all of a sudden this thing that you thought you understood, they show it to you in slow motion, then you actually see what's taking place. I want us to slow-mo what's going on. First, God gives a law. He, as God, is allowed to speak what will and will not, should and should not be. And he says in this law, only prohibition, you can't eat of that one tree. The Bible talks about the law like a mirror. In James, James was the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus. And he, as he's preaching and, and gives us this book of James, he gives us this teaching that says that the law of God, the perfect law of God is like a mirror. And when you look into it, you're seeing things as they should be. And so if you see yourself compared to what should be, you're noticing what parts of yourself are out of whack. You know, put together person, you look to yourself in the mirror and you notice that uh uh-oh, overnight, you know, something came. There's something to be worked on. The mirror shows you what is. You can argue against it, but it does show you what is. God gave us this law in order to see, to see in ourselves when things are twisting when things are changing when they're not how they should be because the law tells us how things should be and though they have the law you get the beginning of chapter three with this serpent that comes in and begins to twist the law he starts by asking questions he starts by giving the woman permission to think about disobeying the law we don't really know what the woman's mindset was going into this conversation, if it never had occurred to her to disobey, if she really did want the fruit but had decided not to. We don't really know how or why the enemy was able to get in and make this one temptation, have this one temptation be so convincing. If you want a really interesting, um, imaginative look at these moments, the, one of my favorite books of all time, it's called Paralandra. I can spell it for you afterward. By a guy named C.S. Lewis. It's fiction, but it's great. And it's his sort of retelling of Paradise Lost, which I don't know if you've ever read that. It's a little difficult to get through. But similar in having like a really cool, beautiful, poetic, but also very biblical and wise retelling of this story. However, what we have and what we deal with at Hope Church is Bible. And the Bible doesn't give us that much information about how the the, the lady walked into this conversation with the serpent. But what we do see is that he gives her questions, and these questions allow her a moment to conceive of the possibility of disobedience. And he's twisting the law, and as he's twisting the law, what he's doing, it's like he's taking that mirror and he's twisting that mirror. He's, he's giving a little concavity or convexity to that mirror so that the way that the woman is perceiving herself, the way that the woman is perceiving the situation is beginning to distort Now, what she saw as ugly seems to be beautiful. If she perceived in herself desire, not just the option from the enemy, but desire to disobey God, because of the way that he's flexing that mirror, she sees that desire not as ugly, not as something leading to death. You know, we talk about a mirror. You're often thinking about things that are going to make you ugly in the day if you don't fix you know, pimples that come up in the night, weird hairs doing all kinds of stuff. Oh, no, no, i got to fix so I'm not ugly. But America can also show you stuff that you need to get taken care of or you're going to die. You wake up and look and you got a gash in your head or you got some kind of big thing popping out of your face, go see a doctor. She would have seen, if she was looking into the law of God without that distortion, she would hopefully have seen the distortion in her own desires as something deadly. But instead, as the mirror distorts and as she is complicit, these hidden dangers, these accentuated pleasures begin to draw her in. No, you won't die. You're going to be like God. And again, James, looking back on this, says in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 of James, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, that last word is a perfect transition into what happens next. So, you have the twisting, you have the desire, then you have the actual commission of the act, the actual transgression, the actual plucking of the fruit, staring. You're seeing that it's, boy, if I did eat it, it would taste good. And it's going to give me knowledge. The actual moment of biting. Then she gives it to her husband and he has some and he was there with her. Then you get these unbelievable consequences. I guess they're not unbelievable. God said they would come but they're drastic, they're intense, they're far-ranging. What she did in that moment was trade paradise for prison. That same guy, C.S. Lewis, and I'll quote from him again in just a second, but he talked about how for a lot of people, they look at the world like a hotel, and they're disappointed. You know you think you would get better service from a place like this. You think you would get better pleasure, better access, better fun, more, more dependability out of a place like this if you look at your life in this world as a hotel. But the Scripture does not tell us to see things that way. It tells us to see them instead. More like a prison, a place where somebody who's just is looking over people who are unjust, and all kinds of awful stuff can happen in prison. She traded that garden for a prison. She traded that place of joy with God and took the natural consequence of saying, effectively with her eating of the fruit, saying that she doesn't want to be God's servant, but she wants to be like God. Mere Christianity is a very famous book by that C.S. Lewis guy. And he says, what Satan put in the hands of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods. Could set themselves up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent. Now, when he says that, I mean, I hope that you're hearing the same thing we've been talking about with Babel and the same thing we've been talking about with Lamech that they could be their own masters, they could invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And all of that doesn't even talk about death. Because, of course, if you unplug, if you pull out of the source of life, what do you have left? When God makes us as image bearers, he doesn't make us self-existent. He makes us to be creation dependent upon a creator, grounded in a creator. We are much more like a pipe. A pipe allows life-giving water to pass through it. If the pipe determines that it is so grand with all this life that's passing through it that it's going to instead just plug into itself, what happens? No more water. Things become dry, they become arid, they become dead. Man, I used to think they were kind of cool looking but a little stupid. They have little kid toys that are fiber optics, it's a handle, and you flip the little switch, and the little hairs coming out of it, the little, I don't know if you've seen them, it's just a bunch of little clear things, you could get them in like a bowling alley if you got enough points at the arcade, but there's these things, the little strings coming out that are fiber optics, and if you turn them on, the strings don't change color, but the ends of the strings do, they become vibrant like, you know, purples and greens and whatever. Well, that is not that cool of a toy, but fiber optics are very cool as a thing, And you've seen in tech companies, maybe further west, where they'll take fiber optics and they'll run them from the ceilings of these giant buildings and bring natural light through fiber optics into uh, little, you know, offices all throughout the building because that's what fiber optic does. It allows light and, you know, you're going to see real quick how little I understand this, but it allows light to pass through like a pipe. Do You see what you are? You are that cable. You are supposed to be something that's bright and shining, but not of yourself because of the light that hits you and then passes through you out. What happens if the fiber optic cable is so impressed with its light and its grandeur and its display that it decides to just plug into itself? What happens is that the light stops. The light goes off. Do you understand that that's what he's saying? That's what scripture is saying? That's what James and Christ and all of everybody that's ever read this stuff is saying is what happened when we sinned? It's not merely disobedience and God and his honor has somehow been offended. It is that you and I are daily attempting to plug in to something not him in order to have life and light and pleasure and good. It's not going to work. It can't. So it's going to end in death? Of course. It's not God having this intense desire to like, okay, everybody has to do whatever they want, but if you step over this line, I'm going to shoot you with this pistol. Oh, intense. Severe. Some sort of weird gangster justice. I think that's how people read this sometimes. But do you understand that it's a natural consequence of unplugging from the only life and light that there is? And that's what the enemy is always tempting you to do so we have to do it differently we have to find a different way what do we do again you go into the new testament you see some severe stuff jesus preaches a very famous sermon called the sermon on the mount in matthew 5 through 7 if you've ever read it there's in there stuff that's really good and helpful and enlightening the first part of it is the beatitudes blessed are the meek blessed are the poor and everybody goes yes that's kind of the jesus that you expect He's talking about how you're going to know a tree by its fruit. And actually, guys, lust is, is real. It's real whether or not you actually have the you know, ability or whatever to pull it off. If you just feel it, that's lust. And it doesn't matter if your anger leads towards actual murder or you just are too cowardly to actually murder somebody. But if you have it in your heart, man, that's really sin. And everybody goes, wow, that's wise, Jesus. Thank you. You get to the end and he's talking about how he's a rock. And if you build your life on this rock, we, you, we've talked all about this and, and I'm going to kind of bore our, our people. But, but what you do when you do that is you give yourself an identity that actually has stability to it. If you build anything else as who you are and where you're going to get your happiness, you're going to find that your house crashes. And that's a lot like what we're talking about now. It's like, oh my goodness, the depth, the perception, the clarity where he's able to present these ideas to us. Wow. Sermon on the Mount. But then right in the middle of it, you get this. Yeah, listen, guys, if your right eye caused you to sin, just go ahead and tear it out. Throw it away. It's better you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Can I tell you that I actually had the reaction of like, I can't say that at church. Well... Get mad if you want to. It's Jesus. He's the one that said it. And he said that if your right eye caused you to sin, pluck it out. That is graphic and gruesome. Who would actually do that? Well, somebody who believed the second part of the verse. For it's better that you lose one member than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Never saw the movie. That makes me think of Saul, though. The little jigsaw or whatever, and he's got you trapped, and you've got to cut your hand off if you're going to get out of the trap. That's what Jesus is talking about. Graphic, intense. But here's why I want to apply it. A, he's making a math equation that works. And he's saying it to people who actually feel like they're tearing out their eyeball just to obey God. (laughs) That's how sinful we are. Just that amount of obedience feels like death to us. And he's saying, listen, even if it is Death, At least it's not capital D, Death, obey, knowing that of course, if we do obey, we'll find it to be life. But also, I, I want to apply it to this when he says, "Take out your eye." Listen, through my eyes, I think I understand. Through my eyes, I think I perceive rightly, and yet my eyes are telling me that this sin is a great idea, and that God in his obedience is a bad idea, certainly a boring idea, and absolutely a difficult idea okay, tear your eye out. Stop listening to what you're telling yourself and just trust. Now, that as a principle is true. That as a lifestyle is impossible. That math, that, that works, but you won't do it. Why? Because it really doesn't change your desire. And everything Jesus is teaching us is leading to that question of how do I change my desire? What about this is uniquely Christian? Well, if you know about Jesus, you may know about the Sermon on the Mount, but you certainly know that he was a healer. Charlatans for thousands of years have tried to give that same impression about themselves, and yet Jesus was one who actually really did heal. And we have all these different stories about it, but it's one There's one that I think exemplifies several, but it's beautiful. In Luke 18, it says, Jesus talking to this guy, blind Bartimaeus. He's walking by, and then he says, what's happening? Jesus is walking by, and Bartimaeus is sitting on the road begging. He's like, what's going on? And another beggar or somebody says, shush, shush, shush. Jesus is walking by. And Bartimaeus starts yelling out, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And somebody maybe it was a Pharisee, maybe it was just an excited guy, kicks him, shut up, Jesus is walking by, he doesn't have time for you, beggar, and yet he keeps it up, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus hears, he comes up to him and says, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus says, duh, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately, he can see. Now, here's what I want to focus on, though. (laughs) He can see, and he follows him, glorifying God. All the people, when they saw it, give praise to God. But look at the blind man. He can see, and what is the first thing he sees? He sees the face of Christ. The one who made him well. And because of that, That vision, he glorifies God. He goes around following Jesus, glorifying God. That's what I want my life to be. If I will just follow Jesus and glorify God, that's it. How does he do it? His blindness is taken away and he's given sight. But what does he see? Not just apples and skies, he sees. The face of God. That's the beauty you have to capture if you are going to war against your desire. Why is it uniquely Christian? Well, you have wise old Buddha who gives us a principle, a way. If we will follow it and renounce in the same way that he did, then we'll have a way. But Jesus doesn't give us a way. He says, I am The way. He doesn't give us a principle. He gives us a person. He doesn't give us facts. He gives us his face. Oh, think about what he did with his disciples. Yes, there was teaching. Yes, he gave them ideas, but what did he really give them? He gave them a whole lot of time. They're just walking around together all the time, day and night, camping together, going and doing all this crazy stuff together. And again, we see this perfect picture of it when Peter goes out and walks on the water. Jesus is walking on water. One of the more famous things he ever did, walking on water out to the boat. It's a storm going on. And Peter, for some reason, says, hey, if that's you, let me come too. And Jesus says, come on. So Peter hops out of the boat and starts walking towards Jesus. And it works. He walks on water while he's looking at Christ. Then in the text, you know, he starts to look around and see, oh my gosh, I'm walking on water. I can't walk on water, duh. And then, whoosh, he falls. Jesus grabs him, pulls him up, and talks to him about his faith. When did it work? It worked when he had his eyes on the face of Jesus, the love of Jesus. All I can think about, and God forgive me for being a dad of little girls, is Aladdin when... Jasmine comes to the side, she's about to jump off and what does he say? Do you trust me? He's got those dreamy eyes and she doesn't look down or anywhere else. She just says, "Sure," you know? And then <laughs> off they go to a whole new world. But that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. It doesn't have her sit down with a, a graph and look at the weight bearing properties of a flying carpet. She sees His face. Brothers and sisters, do you know Him? This is why the resurrection is essential, because we don't follow an example. We follow a person, and if He's not alive, we can't follow Him. This is why the Trinity is essential, because this means, the Trinity means, that God has existed in love and with love from all time, that it's the ultimate reality. He didn't have to create us in order to show or feel love. And our stepping into that love is what this salvation is. It's the forgiveness for. Ever thinking, we could just plug into ourselves. And he can only forgive us because he loves us so drastically. That's the gospel. That Jesus died for us. And that that picture of who he is and what he's done for us gives us that picture of his face. So... If you're a non-Christian and you're thinking about this stuff, seek out whether or not you can see Jesus's face. Who is this guy? What is the love that he feels for you like? Listen, if you're a believer, you do the same thing. When you're reading the scriptures, don't just check off the little boxes on the reading plan and say, done, did it, whoop, off to the next task. Really try to seek his face. If you're looking for a way to serve, come be part of our prayer team. You don't know how to pray? Great. Go sit down with Ronnie and her friends and Dan, and they will show you. You don't have to say anything. Just sit there and listen. But be part of his people seeking his face. Come back next week. I don't know why, but he has made us to be his people and to show the world his face. So come be part of Hope Church. But look, always be looking from all these points of information, not just towards principles, but towards his person, toward his face. And find a desire that will expand in you to crowd out all of these others. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, as we go to the time of the Lord's Supper, I just ask that you would give us wisdom to see this stuff right, to understand it right, so that we're not looking for for better practices or better ways to live or better theology or a more complete worldview Lord we're actually looking for your face we're people who have both intellectual integrity and existential satisfaction father a love that changes everything we pray that you would do this Lord for your glory and our good holy name we pray